This is God's word. Of David, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Psalm 103, God's word. Do we take God's grace and favor for granted? Too often, we all tend to do this. And so God provides reminders that everything we have is a gift. Everything is from his grace and favor. Psalm 103 is one of those. Psalm 103 is a guide to us to make this needed correction, to stop taking it for granted and offer him praise. So that brings us to our main point. David addressed this song to his own heart. We remind ourselves to express thankfulness for God's favor. First, a personal note from David, verses 1 to 5, good reasons why to worship him, verses 6 to 18, and then everyone worship God with me, an invitation to all to join us in worshiping our creator God, verses 19 to 22. Psalm 103 is unique because of its audience, or at least at the beginning. Rather than being addressed to God, rather than being addressed to the nations, rather than being addressed to Israel, this psalm started with David writing to himself, O oh, my soul he says. You ever write a note to yourself, whether in your phone or on real paper? Note to self, uh, set the alarm before going to sleep. Note to self, take that sweater out of the load of wash before putting it in the dryer. Note to self, this or that. But this psalm contains much more important notes to self. This psalm reads more like a personal faith statement or like a diary or last will and testament. Here, David is writing to himself about the most important things in life. The first word of the psalm presents David's theme of his note to himself, bless. 
Now it seems to us as American English readers, when you read the word bless here, uh, bless the Lord, it seems backwards to us. That we come to have God bless us, not us to bless God. It's just the, how we use the word bless. It's, it almost reads to us like you're ba- making a batch of cookies for the baker. It's backwards. The baker makes cookies for us. So all we have to do, if that's troubling you, is switch the word bless to the word praise. And it's easily then understood. But the wonderful Hebrew word is carried over into English so well with the word bless. It's the word baruch. It can be used in two directions. God blesses man. Man blesses God. It's fitting that it's used in both directions. Maybe it's better we just update our use of the word bless, more like the Hebrew word baruch. Thinking about God's excellencies and responding to them is praising him, thanking him. That's the idea here. So here in verse 1, David's blessing the Lord himself. And of course, he's inviting each of us to do the same as we progress through the psalm. We each review, as David reviews his own soul, that the Lord's name is God, and that a core, a quality trait of God is holiness. God's name is the Lord, we're given, and he is holy. And as we're making ourselves freshly aware of these truths about God, we already begin to celebrate with joy. Bless his holy name, David writes, and we're right with him. I can say to myself, bless his holy name. And you can say to yourself, bless his holy name, that you are participating in the song, in the psalm, in the worship of God. And all this is personal for David, very personal. He wrote, oh, my soul, twice at the start. You'll see it again at the very end. He also wrote, all that is within me. Very personal for, for David. We can, we can learn this from David. In fact, we're encouraged to. So the design of some of the Psalms is for us to track along with the author. You and I must tell our souls personally, when we're alone in prayer, when we're in public worship, wherever we are, tell our souls what to think. Tell our souls how to view this crumbling world. We each individually tell ourselves that God's excellencies demand a response of celebration from all that is within me. I get so distracted by the negativity of things that are broken and wrong. I need to come back. I need to focus. All that is within me needs to focus again on the Lord God. Verse 2 tells us why. So that David would not forget. Well, it never entered my mind that David would forget. But David is saying something about himself. He's saying something to himself. He's saying something to us about himself that it's possible for David to forget. And he doesn't desire to forget. You would not forget. I would not forget. That's what he desires, that we would not forget. Bless the Lord that I forget not, verse 2. Forget not what? All God's benefits. That's right at this point that many need a reminder. Some of us just focus on today. We focus on this week. We focus on this month and the current needs, the current concerns, the current problems. How do I get through this, this year? How will things turn out the way I want them to turn out? Praying to God that my desires regarding this would be resolved. That's where we're stuck usually. Right here is where we need the reminder of the biggest and most important benefits from God to me, from God to you, from God to David, our author. Like what? He doesn't mention the most recent military victory. He doesn't mention that awesome meal he just enjoyed as king. He didn't mention those sort of circumstantial recent things. He goes straight to the biggest one starting off. Thank God for all his benefits like what? Verse 3, 
David catalogs a timeless list for starters who forgives all your iniquity and heals all your diseases. Now you can have forgiveness instantly, but physical illness sometimes just throws people off as they read this psalm. It doesn't mean that we're guaranteed physical health, nor does it guarantee we're, uh, we're given wealth. Part of our lives is suffering, even physical and medical suffering by God's arrangement until in heaven every physical illness and every moral infirmity will be gone. And yet we look to God to provide, and often he does. Have there not been times that you were sick and since then you've been healed? You can provide God praise and blessing for those things. And a big step is made in clearing up this and in this direction of God's provision of both of these uh, forgives all your iniquity and heals all your diseases when we look to Jesus. This same Lord God sent his son, the Lord Jesus, into the world, and in Matthew 8, 16 and 17, both sin and sickness were symbolically brought to Jesus in order to fulfill God's prophecies here and elsewhere, his prophecies to love us and the people alive during the days of Jesus specifically. Matthew 8, 16, they brought, many were brought to Jesus who were oppressed by demons and Jesus cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Matthew 8, 16 and 17, fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. So David and Isaiah and Matthew and Jesus all agree on what we're looking at here that we are not to forget the benefits of God. First, that he forgives our iniquity. And second, that one day, eventually, he will heal all of our diseases. There's not going to be disease in heaven. And so if there are some diseases left here, we accept that from him. We can still sing the psalm and pray the psalm and praise his name and bless him. See, all this is accomplished by the coming of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. So David wrote about it, Isaiah foretold it, Matthew witnessed it and wrote about it, and Jesus accomplished it. So bless the Lord, O my soul, that whatever physical maladies I have, he will one day heal all my diseases. We're not taking that for granted today. Verse 4, redeems your life from the pit crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Of course, this points to the Lord Jesus again. Jesus fulfilled this when he acted as our next-of-kin redeemer who made all of our needs his own. He mentions here the pit. Where does your mind go when you hear pit in Scripture? Of course, there's dangers in this world that could be described with pit. We poetically could say a lot of things are a pit. And yet the bigger meaning of this word pit here in this psalm is the dread possibility in the next life that we would have been far from God in the ultimate pit. Instead, we've been redeemed by the steadfast love and mercy of God, as he mentions within the same phrase here. Steadfast love is, of course, a decision and a commitment centered and started by the will of God expressed through his covenant and unchanging despite human behavior. God redeems. He takes people who were dead and makes them alive, people who are turned away and turns them towards him. Mercy is at the heart of God, surging up to take over and change the entire picture of how that person relates to God, how he relates to us, certainly undeserved, certainly unmerited. We don't go to the pit. We're not in the pit. That's not our current or our future actual condition. We are filled 
and surrounded by God's mercy and love. He's merciful, gracious, and loving. He says that in verse 4, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Verse 5, he continues, he satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. You ever see one of those birds that struggles to take off and struggles to fly just from the ground here to a tree some 25 yards away, barely making it? Not the eagle. Oh, what a contrast the eagle is among the birds. The eagle is a tireless picture of unending strength, like a buoy in the water of the ocean that year-round never stops floating energetically up out of the water, so is the eagle, energetically and seemingly effortlessly soaring above all the creatures and even the other birds. Soaring with strength. An eagle pictures the strength with which God equips his people. It's why he says, he satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like what? Like the eagle's that you could soar above all the things that trouble us about this crumbling world. We each must remind ourselves to bless the Lord for this because of God's salvific benefits to me in Christ Jesus by faith. I can soar all over this broken world and its condition with spiritual strength from above, strength like people have when they're young. Bless the Lord, O my soul, for everlasting grace of God being given to me consistently that I can soar over times like we are living in. That's a personal note from David. He's expressing it in the first person singular, I and me, inviting us to do the same in our personal prayers. And now he branches out as we move to our next section, verses 6 to 18, good reasons to worship him for all of us. Now, we've studied the grace of God. We have already mentioned the mercy of God, the favor of God, the blessings of God, and his steadfast love even got mentioned. But now, in this whole second section, King David's central focus will be in verse 11, where David turns our attention now to camp out for a bit on the steadfast love of God for us. Now, we bless God, as we've said. We praise God. We worship God because of his steadfast love for us. And God's overshadowing, overmastering, change, unchanging love for us is seen here in verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As long as he got us looking up, imagining the eagle, now he has us looking up beyond the eagle to the heavens themselves. Verse 11 is as important to this section, verses 6 to 18, as the conductor is important to a choir. Imagine a uh, single file choir set of members entering and climbing those platforms for a choir to stand on for a concert. First stair on the right is verses 6 and 7, pairing with the first stair on the left, verses 17 to 18. Second pair on the right, uh, verses 7 and 8, pairing with verses 14 to 16. Third stair on the right, verses 9 to 10, pairing with third stair on the left, verses 12 to 13. It's too confusing to preach in that order, but I thought I would mention it so you see there, everything's built around the structure of verse 11. So simply remember, the structure all ties back to love in verse 11. I'd like to quote from Pastor Neil Tolzma's excellent book, This is Love, Tracing the Love of God Throughout the Biblical Story. It's his first book. Page 114, after Pastor Tolsma quoted our verse, Psalm 103, verse 11, 
By the way, he quoted our psalm four times in his book. Pastor Tulsma wrote this about our verse, verse 11. Quote, True mercy is more than a love that simply pities. Mercy is God's love in action. The gracious Lord in mercy did what needed to be done in order to redeem his undeserved people, undeserving people. He does not simply feel for his people, but forgives and restores them, end quote. And Pastor Tolzma expressed what David here expressed. The highest reason for us to worship God is that God's love for us took action to save us. It's not just some warm feeling towards us. God took action by sending his son. Now we fill in the other verses to tell the rest of that story. Verse 6, the love of God never compromises his righteousness and his justice. It was in the news a couple years ago that a state trooper pulled over a car with tinted windows. They were too dark. We come to find out that the motorist was himself a retired police officer who 27 years earlier had helped a woman deliver a baby. Would you believe that that baby is now the state trooper who had pulled over that gentleman, now a motorist, retired? He had saved the life of this state trooper years back, and now the young state trooper had this retired officer pulled over for two dark windows. What will happen? The young state trooper let the retired officer go with a warning and no ticket. Controversy ensued. Is that even right? What if it were me driving down with dark windows? Would I get the same treatment? Questions arose and circled. That's the kind of issue we're talking about in verse 6. We never need to question whether God lacks righteousness or whether God lets certain people get away with certain things but not other people get away with other things since God is the righteous head of the entire universe. He does all things right. He will make everything right. The Lord never loves certain people and fails to love other people fully by adjusting his holiness or lessening his standards on this occasion or that day. The Lord's righteousness is never compromised in order for God to love us. Sometimes it looks to the human eye like some wrongs have gone unrighted. And times of oppression have gone unrelieved. However, the Lord sees to it that this is not so at least not permanently, our souls can bless the Lord now because he works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed, and admittedly, he does so on his own timetable. Verses 7 and 8 also fill in around the explanation of his steadfast love, showing what the love of God has made known. God has made known his righteous ways to Moses and his righteous actions to the people of Israel. Always there's this stamp of God's right dealings on all of God's ways and all of his actions. Consider the classic incidents when Abraham spoke to God about destroying the wicked city of Sodom. There were still some righteous people left in that city. Listen in as Abraham nearly confronts the Lord God about his consistency in Genesis 18.25. Quote, Far be it from you, says Abraham to the Lord God, far be it from you to do such a thing to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked, far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? End quote. Genesis 18.25. And the Lord God went on to show his correct dealings to Abraham. He went on to show his correct dealings to Moses. He went on to show his correct dealings with David and to all the apostles. 
Everyone who gets to know the Lord God understands his correct dealings and his righteousness at all times. And so here in verse 8, David in our psalm says God's revelation to Moses, which is found in Exodus 34, 6, and is quoted all across the Old Testament, is spelled out here. And basically, there's four important things. Number one, that God is merciful. Yes, God has compassion for those innocent people in the ancient city of Sodom and the innocent people in any city that's under attack. Number two, that God is gracious. Number three, that God is slow to anger, which is a patient restraint before God implements his just wrath against crimes in this world. And four, that God is abounding in steadfast love and that that's a character trait of God that's always present and never changes. God is love. God is steadfast love. God is, as our verse says, abounding in steadfast love. God is abounding in steadfast love that takes actions to redeem his people. Verse 9, David states the same truths in a different way. This time, the truth about God's loving character is seen in how God does not deal with our sins, kind of like how we sometimes do. Verse 9, our loving God is not always chiding. He's not always keeping his anger forever. Verse 10, our loving God is not dealing with us according to our specific faults, not repaying us according to the perverse bent of our inner natures, to say it another way. Then verse 11 is, again, our central theme about his love. Then verses 12 and 13 flow out of verse 11 as an alternate to the knots of verses 9 and 10. Here David wrote the way God does deal with us in our sins, verses 12 and following. So verse 12, as for our willful actions of rebellion, you know, whenever we know it's wrong and we do it anyway, God takes those transgressions of ours and he removes them from us as far as the east is from the west. Verse 13, in sharp contrast to verse 9, where God will not keep forever his anger against us in his role of our judge. Verse 13, his permanent status towards us is revealed in his role, not as judge, but as father. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. He moves on to verses 14 to 16, where he knows our frame. That is, he knows our process of formation, how fragile it is and was. He knows our weak condition. That is, namely, to put it in one word, dust. He knows our limits. That is, our days of life are brief as the lifespan of a blade of grass. He knows our weaknesses, that our best moments are as fleeting and fragile as a wildflower in the field. He knows us in our brevity, like wind passing over and then it's gone. He knows our impact is like a blade of grass. Its place remembers it no more. Now, is that depressing? I mean, so what? Why is this being expounded right here in this psalm in the Bible at all? Why is that being expounded? Our utter fragility because of the contrast with verse 17 and what follows. God has a contrast to point out to us, and he had to show us our frailty to show us something else. In sharp contrast to all of our weakness comes God. Because God knows us in all of our utter weakness and extreme frailty, he has chosen to reveal to us his stability, his unshakableness, his strength, his impact, his enduringness, namely his steadfast, loving, merciful, righteous dealings with us. 
In verse 18, the Lord sees to it that not just his steadfast love, but also his righteousness are towards those who live his covenant. So put it all together. Verses 17 and 18 read beautifully like this. But, in comparison to our weakness, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. In verses 6 through 18, we have good reasons to bless and worship the Lord that despite our weakness, a condition of dust, his is an everlasting to everlasting steadfast love that nothing can stop. Good reasons to worship and bless and praise him. Brings us to our last section, everyone worship God with me, verses 19 to 22. Verse 19 now asks, how are we to interact with this one, this Lord God? How are we to interact with one who has, quote, established his throne in the heavens? How are we supposed to relate to one whose kingdom rules over all? What is our response to be to the one who rules over all? How should we relate to the one who gives life and health and breath? Should we bow down on our knees, on our faces? Should we stand and sing? Should we paint a large painting on the side of a barn or a bigger structure if we can get one? Should we put together an impressive display of airplanes flying in certain formations and designs in order to thank God? Should we all write individual poems? Should we build a large cathedral for God and gather everyone in one place? How are we called to respond to this God? Does God have any instructions for us through King David? Maybe here would be convenient. The answer is given by God in his condescension and graciousness to us. The answer starts with observing the angels in heaven. Well, that seems fitting. The need creatures who daily observe the protocols of God's presence and God's worship, we need them to show us what's appropriate as we seek to relate to such a lofty being as the God of heaven and the king over all. Basically, the lesson from the angels comes this way. We respond to God... However, God wants us to respond to God. We read carefully in verse 20 and we get exactly that. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do what? Do his word. Obeying the voice of his word. The angels teach us to do God's word. We must keep obeying the voice of God's own word. In other words, we must do whatever God says to do in relation to him. In other words, we don't get creative ourselves. We don't make stuff up for how to worship God. Whoever thought of an air show of airplanes swirling around to praise God? He didn't ask for that. Whose idea was that? Let's scratch that one. That's never going to be enough or acceptable. What has God asked for? How does God want us to worship him in response to his grace and mercy and steadfast love? Verse 21, he gives us exactly that answer. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, that's the beings of heaven, his ministers who do his will. Verse 22, bless the Lord, all his works, all, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. In order for us to respond to the Lord God of heaven in the way that the Lord God of heaven wants us to respond to him, we must do God's will, obeying his word. We will obey God's word. We will keep his commands. We will believe what he tells us to believe. We will pray confession. If he tells us to pray confession, we will believe that he has forgiven us. If he says he's forgiven us, we will turn from our sins and live differently. When he tells us to turn from our sins and live differently, 
We've come full circle here, back to the start of the psalm. He ends with the exact same words that he began, Bless the Lord, O my soul. The ending paragraph emphasizes the same thing the starting paragraph did. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And he begins to list the huge things of salvation and blessing, covering our sins, healing our diseases, saving us from the pit. Did you catch it though? How are we to worship this God? Give me the mechanism. Give me the equation. Give me the steps through which I can go. Bless the Lord, O oh my what? O oh my mechanism, O oh my paintings, O oh my flying. Bless the Lord, O oh our poetry. What God is looking for is your actual self, your inner self, your real you. O oh my soul. God wants us to worship him from within ourselves. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, is how it starts, how it ends, and how our whole lives are supposed to be lived. God wants our hearts No need for some big, beautiful cathedral. You could do what we're doing here in a barn or a bar. No need for the giant air show, impressive as it may be. The Lord is looking for our souls to understand what he has done for us in giving us his son, the Lord Jesus. The Lord whose kingdom rules over all simply asks for your mind, your heart, your attention, your true admiration, your whole inner being. And once he has your soul, you'll gladly support the effort of the kingdom. We'll study his word. We'll present his gospel. We'll support those who go to the ends of the earth to present his gospel. We will talk about his grace here. We'll go over the words of David and we'll go over the sacrifice of the son of David. We will sing to him. We will sing praise to him. We will bless the Lord here. We're called by God and his word to join with all of his angels, with all of his ministers, with all of his works and all the places of his dominion to praise and thank the Lord for his grace to you and to me. All that is within me, he says. Bless his holy name. Forget not his benefits. He forgives your iniquity, heals your diseases, redeems your life from the pit, crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, satisfies you with good. And our souls say, amen, and we celebrate that. All that is within us celebrates Lord. Before I conclude, we're just trying to illustrate this. A, A young man arrived at church worship more than slightly distracted. Tests for school were coming up. Papers loomed heavy. He was exhausted. To be honest, if he was honestly saying this to you, he would say he wanted a nap instead of church. He wanted to stay home and watch something on TV until he fell asleep. He didn't want to think deeply about the Bible. He didn't want to think deeply about the life or anything else. He desired a hundred other things than church and seeking Christ's presence. And then worship began. And they sang these words. I will glory in my Redeemer. My life he bought. My love he owns. I have no longings for another. I'm satisfied in him alone. My question to you is this. After having studied Psalm 103 with me, would you say that this young man was singing a lie? What do we do, in other words, when we're just not into it? It's time to stand, it's time to sing, and my heart isn't there in the song of this hymn. I just can't sing these words and mean it. What do you do then? What do you do when our, our singing in Sunday worship is off? My heart is not tuned to what these messages are. Our singing in Sunday worship is about deciding 
to proclaim the magnificent truth of God, his character, and his mighty works, which we know to be true. So we don't lead by our emotions. We lead by scripture. We lead by his word. We lead by his will. And what he says to us is true and what he says for us to do about it. Our singing in church is about making music in our hearts to the Lord together as his people. Paul echoes what we found here in Psalm 103 and Ephesians 5.19, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So again, what do we do when our hearts don't match up to the words we're singing? The answer is we go ahead and sing, trusting God to use the very words of these very songs to realign our hearts and bring about the truth that we're singing. This is not hypocrisy. This is not a lie. This is honesty. It's the same as what David is saying. I've got to reorient my soul. He wrote it first for himself, and then he shared it with us. We have to admit like David admits, there's times when our hearts aren't right. It's to borrow a phrase from Augustine, one of God's ordained means for God to create what he commands. He commands us to bless him from our souls. He has to create in us what we can't create in us. Make my heart right again, O Lord. We echo that and command ourselves, bless the Lord, O my soul. You're telling yourself to get with it. (laughs) And this is an honest assessment of the deficiency of our distracted and struggling souls, a declaration of faith in the God who raises the dead can straighten out my affections of my heart as we're willing to give grace-driven effort to seek God's help and trust God in our singing, then the act of worship itself by the Holy Spirit and God's grace becomes a faith-creating agent in our sanctification and our souls begin to follow our voices and we bless the Lord for real. We were made for this. We were made to praise him for his glory. Bless the Lord, O my soul. We can echo David and God's word. Let's pray. Father, keep reminding us of your blessings. Keep 